0: The Gospel of Matthew chapter 24, for a few moments this morning I want to minister on looking into the future. We want to see what Jesus said about the last days. First book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 24, and I'll begin reading with verse number 1. of thy coming, and of the end of the world. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Father, for the next few moments, as we look into your word, we want you to minister to us clearly. Help us to understand the day in which we're living. And I pray, God, if there's anything complex, help me to clarify it. Where any of us, Lord, are doing what you told us to do, I pray that we would find encouragement through the Word of God. And if any of us, Lord, have been astray from your truths and your Word, I pray the convicting power of the Holy Spirit would bring us all back in the right path. These things we pray for in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. The subject of Bible prophecy is one that's very interesting and certainly intriguing. Anytime people have wanted to know about the future, they have sought a number of different means to try to figure out what the future holds. If you don't believe that people want to know the future, why do you think people go to fortune tellers? Why do you think people visit mediums, go to clairvoyants? People are interested in understanding the mysterious, the unveiled. They want some insight the future. But Jesus gives us clarity when it comes to what we can expect before his return. And if you've taken the time to read through this chapter before, you know that there are two other chapters that go along with this. Mark chapter 13, Luke chapter 21. These three chapters deal with some of his final statements on the Mount of Olives. And these chapters are just as important as the sermon on the Mount. Jesus speaks clearly about what we can truly expect. Each gospel, though, has a different emphasis in the telling of the Sermon on the Mount. Luke emphasizes in the beginning Jesus sitting in the temple area, watching as people were casting in their tithes and offerings. And he saw a little poor woman, older woman. She put in a few little shekels. And Jesus watched as the wealthy people put their money in, and he said to his disciples, pay attention to that older lady. She's put in more money than all the wealthier ones because she gave out of her poverty. And I think that shows us that God really does pay attention to how we give and how much we give. There are people in this world that spend their life doing everything they can to hoard to themselves what they've received, and they don't think about giving to God an offering, a tithe. But have you ever considered that 10% of anything you earn, find, inherit, belongs to God? That little woman gave more than the wealthy people because she gave out of what she had. It hurt her. Those disciples heard Jesus when he himself ministered to them about that. That's the specific nuance that Luke gives. Mark, on the other hand, they exit the temple and Jesus is with them and they start pointing out all the beautiful stones, how wonderful these stones were, how the temple was adorned. But Matthew doesn't go that far. Now I should tell you that if you've ever seen pictures or geographical maps of the Temple Mount, it in Jesus' day was about 36 acres in its dimensions. It's a very big place. My wife and I have stood up there near the Dome of the Rock, seeing little children up there playing on that Temple Mount. It could house a lot of people. On that Temple Mount, there once, along with the temple, was a fortress that fortress housed the Roman garrison that tried to protect Jerusalem whenever there was a difficulty or some kind of uproar, revolt. In that fortress or palace, that's where the high priest kept his most holy vestments under lock and key, the Roman soldiers. But this temple, we could call it the greatest wonder of the world for the ancient Jewish people. The bulk of them lived in small rural villages like we live in right now. And if you can remember as a kid how happy you were to be able to get to town, this is how these disciples would have been to be able to get to Jerusalem and see all of these buildings on the Temple Mount that were made of massive white stones, some of which were 7 to 10 feet tall. Then very, very thick. I don't know how they would have moved them all to set them on top of each other. But on a sunny day, with the beams of light radiating and pouncing off of that white rock from anywhere in the valley, you would have saw the beauty of that temple mount. It was something that captured everybody's attention. It was in that facility that Jesus had preached many messages, healed many people that were sick. And on this particular occasion, as he exited the temple, the disciples, so charmed by everything that they saw, they said, Lord, look at the rocks, look at the stones. And Jesus said in verse 2, there won't be one stone left upon another. What a prediction. We know from the Scripture that this, according to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 20, had been at least... Forty-six years in its construction, and now Jesus says this entire thing is going to be destroyed, and that is what happened. 70 A.D., when the Romans came under the leadership of that general by the name of Titus, they came and razed the city and the Temple Mount. And by razed, I mean R-A-Z-E-D, they demolished it all, destroyed in fulfillment of, of a prophecy Jesus made some decades before. But the disciples weren't through. Him. He comes off of that mountain, crosses the valley, goes to the mountain where the olives were, the mountain of the anointing, this olive grove with hundreds of trees there, and privately they come to our Savior and they ask three questions. Now Matthew records the three questions. Luke and Mark record Different aspects of the question, but one question that is common to all three Gospels is the little phrase there, when shall these things be? Three questions here. The first question is answered beginning with verse 4. The second question is answered beginning with verse 29. And the third question will be answered in chapter 25, verse 31. When shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? We all wonder that. When will Jesus return? We've heard forever that one day the Lord is going to come back for his church. When will he come? We know that if any of us drew our last breath today, we'd be absent from this physical body and present with the Lord. So in that sense, we say he's coming for people every day but in a very literal and in a very physical sense. One day Jesus Christ is going to return for his bride, and he says to each one of us here today in verse 4, Take heed that no man deceives you. So that tells me clearly. An instrument of deception in the last days will be used by the devil, and those instruments that the devil's going to use are going to be people. We're so easily deceived. We're so easily caught up in all kinds of delusions and deceptions. You know that right now there are people that will pick up the telephone and call elderly folks and tell them that their grandson is in jail and that if they send X amount of dollars, they'll be able to get them out and post bail. And do you know there are hundreds of elderly people across this nation that fall for that? Don't know any better. Don't let anybody deceive you. I spoke with a bank president here not too long ago in another town, and he said, "Pastor, you'd be surprised at the number of old retired farmers' wives that I see coming in here, and they take out 15, 20, 30, 40,000 dollars, and then the cashier comes in and tells me that they've just done it, and I have to chase them down the alley to get to them because they're about to send that money to someone that called on the telephone that they never knew. Deception comes in a lot of different forms, but yet Jesus is very clear. Pay attention. Don't let anybody deceive you. It's easy. We can be gullible. Somebody comes along with something that sounds good, but typically if it sounds too good to be true, then what? It's typically not true. Yeah. Jesus understood that in the last days there would be plenty of people that would be practitioners of deception. They will be experts at it, changing people's thinking, changing people's minds. And then he qualifies it a little bit more and gives us some specifics in verse 5. He says, many will come in my name. You can see the second word of verse 5 is the word many. It's the last word of verse 5 also. You can see it again in verse 10, verse 11, verse 12. The fact that he uses the word many tells us there's going to be a lot of deceivers, a lot of liars. Many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ. It'll be false. What is a false Christ? Someone who believes that they can do what Jesus can do but can't. Someone who pretends to be who Jesus is but is not. Someone who, who, in their speech, is able to be very charismatic and, in a sense, can draw people unto themselves but could never die on a cross and redeem anybody. To lead many people to believe they are anointed. He said, Oh, no, people can't be too gullible to believe something like that, Pastor. Well, years ago, down in Waco, Texas, look at how many hundreds of people believed David Koresh was the Messiah when the FBI surrounded that place, when the place burned to the ground, look at how many people died with him. Law enforcement everywhere. Think about the Jim Jones scenario, very popular. Who would have thought that one man who was a very popular speaker at one time, a full gospel preacher, and then also a preacher in the congregational church, could could turn around and lead thousands of people to drink, kool that's laced with sewer, cyanide and tell them that they're taking their lives. This is the last thing we're to do to resist this world. But they did it. The devil is very crafty, and he anoints people to be popular in such a way that there's a magnetic attraction about them. False Christ. And wherever you have a false Christ, you have a false gospel, you have false preachers, and you have a false way of salvation, which means you'll have a false kind of new birth. There are plenty of people that have never been born again that go to church all the time, but they have never genuinely given their heart to the Lord and put their life in the hand of the Lord and surrendered everything to God and said, Lord, I want you and you alone. They chased after other things. False Christ. And any kind of gospel that doesn't demand self-denial of you, any gospel that doesn't demand the death of self in your life, any gospel that doesn't require you to say not my will but thy will, God, is false. There are plenty of preachers that Enjoy that. And as you can see in verse 5, the Lord said, they deceive a lot of people. Some years ago, a Harvard divinity professor published a papyrus fragment, and it had a little inscription in it that said, Jesus. And then it had three dots, which means there's some words there nobody could figure out. And Then it said, his wife, my wife, I should say. And so the scholars got together and believed that obviously that fragment means that in ancient times Jesus had a wife, that the Gospels had been inaccurate, that he wasn't a single man, man, but that he was married. But then there was a Greek scholar who was a Harvard classicist that came along and demonstrated after a lot of ink had been spilled that it was a forgery, which it was. What was amazing to me was to read some of the articles in the academic journals and discover how many people were deceived by it. How many people honestly believed that our Savior had a physical life and stood up and made a promise in front of witnesses. I could have answered that question easily and explained that Jesus is awaiting the time when he enjoys the marriage supper of the Lamb and that he does have a bride, the bride of Christ, which is a church, but he was not physically married on the earth. But there are plenty of people, I think, that go out of their way to try to make it seem like the text of Scripture are not true and that we can believe whatever we want to believe about Christ. No, you can't. Stay with the book. Stay with what the text says. Don't go above and beyond what the Bible says. Don't try to fabricate something in your own head when you hear people say things like this. Well, I can't imagine that God would be like that. Well, we're not preaching your imagination. And it doesn't matter whether you can or cannot imagine God in such a way. You need to know what the book says. And if you can't find in the book the right image and picture of the Lord, you'll end up with a false Christ. And this is what we have today. We have people preaching of Jesus that doesn't save, of Jesus that's very religious, and a false Christ that has deceived many. Jesus said, in the last days you'd hear of wars and rumors of wars. We have that. Now, there are two issues here. There's the talk of conflict. And then there's the actual conflict. 2,000 years ago, people were dealing with warfare all the time. Jesus understood warfare. Well, Pastor, where does it all begin? What is the history of conflict? It goes back to the garden. Adam and Eve sinned. When they sinned, they were put out of the garden, and outside of the garden came, rose up and killed his own brother, shed his own brother's blood. Think of that and having murdered his own brother. That's the first conflict. Now, if you have a child on the school grounds who's being bullied, and then he stands up to the bully and fights back, then we just simply call that a schoolyard brawl or a fight, just like we would with Cain and Abel. But if you get a couple of families involved, like the Hatfield mccoy kind of a thing, then we'll tend to call that a feud. But if you get politicians and people involved, and you have armies on one side and armies on the other side, then we tend to call that a war where, where in, in, in fact, in point of reality, you're dealing with the same motivation, disagreement, jealousy. Whether it's two people in conflict, 20 people on either side in conflict, it's still a war. Because you have somebody with an opposing opinion and they want to conquer somebody else's opinion to lead them to believe their opinion is the only one that is correct. And Jesus said you're going to have wars and this is why in ancient times you had all kinds of conflicts. Why do you think Russia is in Ukraine right now? Why do you think they're interested in taking over that territory? Why did Saddam Hussein go to Kuwait? He said, well, Kuwait was originally a part of us. It's a war. And sometimes if you pay attention to what people are saying, they'll talk about the war before the war begins. They'll hint and allude to what they want to do. Jesus said in the last days, you're going to hear about that, but he said, do not be troubled. Don't allow the warfare, the conflict, to shake your faith. It's not always easy when the battles are so bad, the tribal conflicts in Rwanda led to hundreds of thousands of people dying. The wars of Bosnia-Herzegovina when I lived overseas in Turkey, terrible. A lot of people died, but my faith wasn't shaken. Scripture here is clear. It's going to be war. There will be rumors of wars right up until the end of time, I can assure you, but it is up to you to make sure your faith is undergirded by what the Word of God says. Now, Billy Graham, when he started preaching, was very popular, preaching for the youth, for Christ. He had a friend named Charles Templeton, who was a little older than him, and everybody thought he was a better preacher than Billy Graham. And they thought that he would be as popular as Billy Graham, and for a season, all across North America, he was. I think he was Canadian by birth. But as they would hold revivals in different parts of America... They would see a lot of people coming to Christ. But Charles Templeton one day began to read some literature that caused him to become a skeptic about the infallibility of the Bible, about the inerrancy of the Scripture, about the divine inspiration of the passages in the Bible. And in wrestling with that, he thought, I should go to Princeton Seminary, at that time a somewhat liberal institution. And most evangelicals, and certainly full gospel, anybody conservative, they weren't sending their preachers to Princeton. They were sending them to places where people believed the Bible to be the word of God. Well, he tried to talk Billy Graham into going, Billy Graham declined. Charles Templeton went. When he exited the school, he had just a sliver of faith left because he honestly believed. There is no way these books of the Bible were written by the names that are appended to them. So he started sliding backwards in his faith. Billy Graham kept going onward with God, getting stronger and stronger, more and more popular. World War II came, and in those days, if you wanted to learn anything about the war effort, you went to a theater. And at the theater, before they'd show a film, they'd often show clips of what was going on in Europe. And even sometimes they wouldn't even show a movie, they'd just show film clippings of what was happening in the war theater over there in Europe until so people would come from everywhere, in little towns, big cities, just to see what was going on. Mr. Templeton went one time, sat there in the movie theater, looked up there, saw the victims of the Holocaust, the stacks and piles of bones and those that had died during the Holocaust. And he lost all of his faith in that theater because he started asking the question, what kind of a God would allow this to happen? to any group of people. And later in life, he wrote a book called Farewell to God and died an atheist. What a terrible way to die. Jesus said, My peace I leave with you, not as the world gives, I give unto you. And he tells us quite plainly that the peace we have with him is given to help us overcome the world. There are world wars in this world, and there are difficulties that take place, but you ought not lose your faith in God because of difficulties. But trust the king. Jesus said, when this happened, these things, when they come to pass, the end is not yet. Now, all of what he's talking about in this chapter is pushed up against Verse 21, because verse 21 deals with a period called the Great Tribulation. These are all the events that's going to happen generationally, but specifically just before the return of the Lord. Listen to what he says in verse 7. Nation shall rise against nation. Nation is our English word, the Greek word being ethnos, but it's also the basis of our English word, ethnicity. I would ask you how many ethnic groups are there on planet Earth? You couldn't tell me, I couldn't tell you. If I asked you how many are here in America, you couldn't tell me, I couldn't tell you. But just from what we understand, uh, being 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 black, I'm one group. You being Caucasian, that's another group. The Asians, that's a group. The Hispanic folks, that's a group. People that are of an Indian background, that's a group. There are a variety of different ethnic groups. But Jesus says in the last days, ethnic groups are going to rise up against one another. You've seen it. You see it daily. Look at how, how conniving the devil is in trying to keep one group of people opposed to another, afraid of another, uh, distrust about another, even angry with another. Every time you look up, there's somebody on television that, that's of an African background saying, look, the, the white people have treated us wrong for so long, and it's terrible the things that they've done, and we ought not believe in anything that they're saying, trying to stir up people then at the same time you'll have, have other people in different groups, whether it's Hispanic, white, or any other group, trying to stir up masses of people to think this way about another particular group, and the devil is applauding, and he's clapping because he's, ex- he's excited about this. Jesus said these are all signs of the last days. I've told you before, don't waste your time arguing with people about a lot of the stuff from the past. I've never been a slave, you've never owned one, so let's go from here. Ethnic group will rise up against ethnic group, one kingdom against another kingdom. A of domain that's under the spear and influence of a powerful figure will go up against other kingdoms. And this is what we see in politics, this is what we see on a local level. This is what we see in our culture, one kingdom trying to overcome another kingdom. They have thoughts and views that oppose ours, and we're going to impose them upon the other people. So when our little kids at the age of three, four, five, and six have to be introduced to not really knowing what their gender is, that's a kingdom view. It's not a biblical view, but it's a view of the kingdoms of this world. And parents have have a, how do I want to say it, an obligation to make sure that they counteract the influence of a world that is ungodly when it's trying to stamp its own image upon those children. Have to. We have a biblical model that says, have you not read that God made them in the beginning male and female? So marriage is a man and a woman. That's kingdom view. That's not the view of the culture of this world. And as we understand the scripture, Jesus says all of these things in verse 7 are symptomatic of what's going to take place in the last days. Don't be surprised. I told you decades ago. Don't be surprised when they start saying, let's make polygamy. Okay. Don't be surprised when they start saying it shouldn't matter how many spouses you have. They're already talking about that now. Jesus had a clear line towards the future. He says in the last days there'll be famines, that's shortages of food or lack of food, pestilences, all kinds of diseases and other distressful things, and earthquakes in diverse places. There'll be earthquakes in places you wouldn't think there'd be earthquakes. Now I assume it's been the last 100 years or so people have been really recording these, but... There have been a lot of bad earthquakes on planet Earth that we don't know about. Yeah. And when I lived in the Middle East, they had one in the eastern part of Turkey and Iran. In about three minutes, the Earth opened up. I was living in Istanbul, Turkey at the time. The Earth opened up, and more than 20,000 people died in about three minutes. Just disappeared. Earthquake. Don't tell me Jesus didn't have his finger on the pulse of what's taking place in this world. We know that even in Moses' time, the Scripture says, the sons of Kor rebelled against Moses, and the earth opened up and swallowed them. I mean, he had a whole tribe of people that basically went to hell with their clothes on. Earth opened up. And yet, here our Lord is speaking from this mountain and says in verse 8, all of these are the beginning of sorrows, griefs concerns. Yeah. Now it seems like he's painting a picture that isn't too pretty, but of course he understood the nature of man. He knew the presence of sin and the influence of sin that it would have upon mankind. And this is why we have the problems that we have today. Are you really startled about the direction our nation is going in? The more of Jesus we remove from men's hearts, and from the public sphere, the less of a godly influence there can be, which means our behavior and conduct can't do anything but degenerate. You can pray for revival. You can pray for God to do something wonderful in our communities, but I'm telling you, if we don't have Jesus in a strong way manifested, how can there be any kind of change? According to the scripture, the law was never made for the righteous but for the unrighteous, yeah, back when we used to be part of the Black History program that they put together in Hastings, Tiffany and i would I would do the prayers there, but every year we sat at the table with a number of people who were citizens of Hastings, prominent citizens. But every year we were always at the table with a guy who was from back east. He was the, the sheriff of Hastings. And I would sit there at the table with him and, and ask him, tell me about what's going on up here these days. And then he'd go on and on and start telling me this area of town, this is what's happening, this area of town, this is what's happening, this area of town, this is what's happening. But he said, the one thing we see over and over again, just an increased lawlessness in drugs. Now, this was like 16, 17 years ago. If you remove Jesus from the hearts of people in a public way, even in their homes, then it is a necessity, a natural consequence, that people's behavior is going to go in the opposite direction. Jesus said all of these are the beginning of sorrows. These won't put smiles on your faces. In verse 9, he said that people are going to betray you and deliver you up. You're going to have to deal with people that will torture you because of your faith. They'll kill you, and you'll be hated of all nations for my name's sake. So Christ said in another location, "Don't don't be surprised if they don't like you. They don't like me. That's what he said. So the disagreements that I see very often don't have anything to do with the color of someone's skin. It has everything to do with whether or not Christ is reigning in somebody's heart. It does. You watch TV programs and you listen to reporters very often. They talk about Christians that are conservative, that believe the Bible to be the word of God. They talk about those folks like they're the worst wretches on the planet. But if you call yourself a Christian and you accept any and everything and you don't see anything wrong with anything that takes place, they act like your Christianity is the best thing that ever happened. But I'm telling you again, a Christianity without a Christ, without a cross, is not a Christianity. If it doesn't cause the death of self and for me to conform to the ideas of what the Word of God says, it's a false gospel not producing salvation. We see it in the last days. And so a few years ago when everything began in this nation with the COVID issue, how many times did you see people that were betrayed by their own loved ones? Good friends of ours that girls in management, Pfizer, used to live up in Canada. And she would call me from time to time, tell me about some of these little shots and all this stuff that their group had manufactured. But she told me that Canada, just a really, really difficult place to live right now, she said they passed a law up there that said you're not allowed to have anybody in their home except the ones that reside there. Now this was just going back maybe about nine months ago. And she said, Pastor, I'm telling you right now, we're watching families on our own street, that when other family members come to visit them, the neighbors are turning them in, and the police are coming and arresting them, okay, for visiting their family. This is what's happening in Canada. Not allowed to have any kind of, a, of opposing view. Jesus said, verse 9, they shall deliver you up to be afflicted. Who were the ones that were speaking out? Very often Christians that love God, those were the ones. And Jesus said you'll be hated. But verse 10, he says, then you'll find that many will be offended and betray one another and hate one another. So that means in the last days you can expect an increase in easily offended people. Have you noticed that? How you have to go out of your way to walk on eggshells to make sure you don't anger anybody. You've got to be careful come Christmas time. You don't say Merry Christmas to the wrong person. And be careful. And you certainly don't want to do anything that's going to offend somebody if you get the wrong pronouns in trying to talk to people, describe them. I read a National Geographic magazine seven or eight years ago, maybe slightly longer. In that magazine, it had 26 different genders. I thought there was just boys and girls. That's what I thought. 26 different genders. Oh, my goodness. Arise in offendedness. One of our other churches, we have a lady who's in charge of the probation officers across this state. She told me, she said, Pastor, do you realize that in the criminal system now, we can't even call people criminals when they're in the court. We have to call them justice? Involved individuals. I said, really? So said, we don't want people to be offended and we don't want them to have a stigma attached to what it is that, that they're doing. This is why, folks, there's such a pressing move right now to remove the, the title pedophile so that we'll say minor attracted people. Doesn't sound is bad. But, folks, I'm going to tell you right now, wickedness is still wickedness no matter what tag you put to it. It's still a sin. Jesus said in the last days many shall be offended, and we have a culture today that is is generating everything you can think of to keep people from being offended. Hollywood is a very small place in California, but it has a massive amount of influence, handful of people a handful of industries that create movies, they are able to influence the whole world by what they put out through television programs and through movies. And you you pay attention to the images, the, the little innuendos, the things they insinuate. They very often make the father look like he's the dumbest person in the family. Yeah. And they typically make the children look like they're the wisest in the family. And whatever seems to be traditional, by traditional now I'm meaning biblical, they'll go out of their way to make sure they have an alternative lifestyle that is contrary to what everybody has known for centuries. But Jesus said don't be surprised because in the last days you're going to have that and you'll have people betraying one another. That is exactly what happens. You say something that somebody doesn't like, and before you know it, you get turned in, then your bosses send you off to a little farm where you learn how to use the correct language. Yeah. Go to a PC school. Learn to say the right things that are politically correct. And if you don't, then they'll just remove you or, as they say today, they'll cancel you. I guess you can see I'm not too politically correct. I don't really care. I think when Jesus says in these last days, all of these things are coming, we have to keep our eyes open because, again, in verse 11, there will be false prophets that will deceive many. And then in verse 12, he says, iniquity shall abound. Why will iniquity abound? Because false prophets will deceive many people. And as people follow the deception, iniquity and transgression and lawlessness will then be perpetuated. It will be multiplied, and the love of many will grow cold. And there are some people today, when you talk to them about Christ or any kind of religion, they are totally indifferent to it now. They're numb to it. They don't care. They'll say, look, I went to Sunday school. I heard all those stories. I listened to people talk about God. I've heard people on television today. But the love they once had for God and the love they might have once had for people, it's grown cold as though they're dead to it, like a corpse no feeling, no sentiment at all. But I want you to know that there is a brighter side to verse 12, because even though it says iniquity shall abound, let's not forget Romans 5 verse 20, it says that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. So even though Jesus has given us this list of all of these terrible things, and we see these things on a day-to-day basis. I'm telling you, the harvest is ripe right now for an outpouring of the Spirit of God and for people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And if the grace of God was able to conquer your heart and bring you to Jesus, don't you think God can save somebody else? I mean, think about it. Think about what we all were like. We were all sinful. All in wickedness and iniquity was abounding in our life, but miraculously, the grace of God got to us. Yeah, and I'm really quite pleased that I know you on this side of the cross, because I think some of you you'd have been hard to deal with before you knew Christ. Yeah, I know I was a pretty bad little, bad little boy and got in more mischief than than, than most kids should have got involved with. Older boys, my brother's friends, they all nicknamed me Heathcliff. After that little mischievous cat, I was always in trouble, folks. You figure any kid that goes to jail for the first time when he's eight years old, that's a kid that's in trouble. Eight years old, they walked me out of that front door of that elementary school. The policeman had them. Them cuffs on my hands and my wrists and hands were so small, of course, they couldn't even keep it in there, so they just told me, just make it look like you're handcuffed. So I did. You said, what made it so bad? The fact that my dad was a cop. So made it bad. My dad was a cop. and You better believe I took a beating when this was all over. Yeah, yeah. But terrible. I'd sit there in the, the bus little thing. You probably see them in some of the big cities. People waiting on the bus to come by. They sit down on the little bench with the covering waiting for the bus to come by, sitting out of the rain and the wind. I sit there in that little booth waiting to rob somebody, just as a kid. Had two older brothers. Both of them were selling drugs. Both of them were running with gangs. But I hit junior high school. Then this beautiful little girl in seventh grade caught my eye. I was in eighth grade. And because I was interested in that little gal, I ended up going to church with her family, and in that church came to know Christ in a powerful way. Yeah. If Christ could conquer my soul as a little 12, 13-year-old boy in the fall of 1982, if he could save me out of a pagan family that didn't know anything about God, didn't go to church or anything like that, I know God can save anybody around here. Anybody. Alcoholic, he can handle it. Sexual abuser, he can handle it. Somebody that's just caught up in sin and self-righteousness, he can handle it. Somebody that's been divorced multitudes of times, he can handle it. Somebody that's an abuser physically of somebody, Jesus, can handle it because wherever there's sin that abounds, the grace of God, that's much more about. And all of us in here that are Christians are trophies of God's grace. And you can tell anybody your story. You don't have to be ashamed of your story. In fact, when you tell your story, you're to reach people because you'll be able to let them know, I really was not that bright when I wasn't walking with God. And and if you weren't that bright, even after you came to some kind of a knowledge of God, you could still tell them that because that will reach some people. But in either case, the same grace that saved you will save somebody else. And I hope and pray you'll never forget that. That once you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, you're forgiven. You don't have to look back on your past and feel bad anymore because you are now saved out of all of that, and you have a pure conscience before God, and the only thing your past is to be used for now is a testimony of what God is doing in your life today. Don't allow your past to hinder you from what God wants to do in the future. And Jesus took us into the future of Matthew 24, he was giving us a future of what to expect from people that didn't know him and didn't walk with him. This is not the future of Christians. One day, folks, a trumpet is going to sound. The dead in Christ are going to rise up. We which are alive and remain are going to be called away. I honestly believe somewhere in glory, somewhere near that throne, there's an angel standing by that throne with a trumpet pressed to his lips, and he's looking over there at the Father, just waiting on the signal to blow. Just waiting. And one day he's going to blow, and Jesus is going to descend from heaven into this earth's atmosphere. It's going to be so powerful that all of us who are born again and have had our sins washed in the blood instantly, we are going to see graves and everything it's going to be opened up because all of those that have been heaven are somehow going to go back into wherever their burial sites are, and things are going to be reconstituted in a miraculous way. People are going to then put on a, a beautiful, glorified, wonderful body. I don't know how it's going to happen. It's a mystery, First Corinthians 15 says. He said, "Well, pastor, what about people that burned up in a house, or people that were devoured in the ocean by all kinds of mammals in the waters?" And, and well, I mean, what's going to be reconstituted? Well listen, the God that started in the beginning with the dust of the earth knows how to do that all over again. He can do it all over again. He that started with nothing can start with nothing again but all of us that are still alive when that trumpet sounds and when Jesus descends and when that great and vast multitude assemble in the heavens, we which are alive and remain, one day we're going to be walking, and suddenly you're going to take a step and you're going to disappear and you're going to be airborne. We're going to be with the king forever, and the Bible says comfort one another with these words. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Caught up, the rapture. First Thessalonians 4 makes it very plain. All of us that love the Lord are going to be caught up to be with him. And then that's when the events of the tribulation on this earth will break out. But folks, we'll be gone. We'll be with the king. Meanwhile, we're to occupy till he comes, and we're to tell folks about Jesus. And I look forward to spending an eternity With all of you as we sit around that river and talk about how wonderful God is, yeah. I'll sit there and give you a hard time in heaven. I'll say, Becky, I don't know why you couldn't get Terry out here to church a little bit more often. Yeah, we'll we'll give you a hard time. But i say, it doesn't matter. Now we're in heaven now. We're loving on the King. We're praising God. Come on, let's stand today. Everything we've said as you've read with us in the Scripture, has just been verse by verse through Matthew 24. We've given you evidence of what we can expect, and we're seeing it today. But I pray that God helps all of us be the witnesses He desires us to be in these last days. Folks, don't be intimidated by the culture. Don't allow what you see taking place in our small towns to have such an effect upon you that you... Can't hold a biblical opinion. I've told our teachers and people in medical places, I said, I know what the protocols are for you when you're on the job, what you can, cannot say, and all of that. But you are allowed to have a private opinion, invite people to your home sometimes. Say, let's go stand out here on the sidewalk. I'll tell you exactly what I believe. Or better yet, come on down into the tabernacle. Pastor, Dare you clearly what that book says. But don't allow the devil in this world to intimidate you. But you can't walk with God. Yeah. Let's pray. Father, when we think about your word and we think about where we are on your calendar, knowing that in these last days we're closer today to your return than we were yesterday, we do want to be better witnesses. And God, in our heart, if we have not done what is right and lived for you as we should, we ask you to forgive us now. Give us a second chance, a third chance, a fifth chance to start all over again on the right path with you. And we pray that as you lead and guide us, that we find our direction from your word. We love you. We honor you. We praise you. In Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, Amen.